this is Whitney. And this is Melissa from Colts, Crimes, and Cabernet. We wanted to share some exciting news with you. On our journey of navigating advocacy through this true crime space, we believe that the name Colts, Crimes, and Cabernet no longer reflects our position on ethical true crime content. As much as we have grown to love our original name and our journey to get here, our evolution from that first glass of wine between friends to meeting with family members, survivors, and fellow case advocates has forever changed our stance. We're committed to amplifying the voices of victims, survivors, and experts who are fighting for justice and change in the criminal justice system. We're here to empower you to also become advocates for change, no matter where or who you are. That being said, we would like to introduce you to our new name, Navigating Advocacy. We invite you to join us in navigating advocacy through the murky waters of true crime. Let's make a difference together. We'll see you next week on Navigating Advocacy, available wherever you get your podcasts. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. This week's story takes us to the west side of the state, to Grand Rapids where a family from Sierra Leone came looking for safety and the American dream. They did not find what they were looking for. Mouche Dumboya vanished after leaving the house one morning to catch a bus to school. Fear immediately encompassed her family, even more so because she had been scheduled to testify against a man she had accused of sexually abusing her. Mouge, her family, and her mother's three sisters had come to the United States from Sierra Leone as refugees back in 2005. This was just a few years after the devastating civil war was declared over in 2002, but life in Sierra Leone was dangerous and difficult for a number of reasons, and many families fled the country. Mouge was extremely close with her aunt, Jania Sano, and they would speak almost daily on the phone. Mouge had lived with Jania over the summer of 2017, and she was frequently a visitor at her home. After coming to the United States, Mouge settled in with ease. She was a sophomore at Kentwood High School and she thoroughly enjoyed school. Jania described her niece as someone who was very smiley and someone who liked to look pretty. She would often borrow her aunt's makeup and perfume. Mouge was very organized and a clean teenager, to the extent that she would go to her aunt's home just to clean it and make sure that it looked in top shape. Her loved ones said she had an adventurous spirit and was a very good student. At school, she had a close circle of friends and was loved deeply by those friends. She also enjoyed music and dancing. She took dance classes as well as classes in martial arts and archery. 
she had ambitions to become a police officer and help fight against social injustice, particularly racism. It was a cold morning on the 24th of January, 2018. Mujay got up that morning and proceeded to get ready for school. Before heading out the door to catch the bus, she asked her mother, Fatmara Korne, for a dollar so she could buy some hot chocolate. Her mother gave her the money and she shouted, Bye, Mommy, before leaving through the front door to head to the bus stop. Later, her mother received a phone call from the school. They informed her that Mujay had not arrived at school that morning. Fatmata searched the streets for her daughter, making sure to contact all of her friends in the hopes that one of them knew where she was, but no one had seen her that day. By the following morning, she had still not returned home. Her aunt was expecting her daily phone call from Mujay, but no phone call ever came, which was completely out of the ordinary. She said, when she didn't call me, I started freaking out. It wasn't like her to be away that long. Early in the morning, the family called police to report her missing. Police made an appeal to the public, asking that if anyone had seen the missing child to please get in contact. When she vanished, she was wearing a black Columbia jacket, a white and pink t-shirt with a print of Cinderella's face on the front, blue jeans, and pink Nike tennis shoes. While Mouche had been reported as missing by her family, police would report in the media that she was a runaway. But listeners, that was not the case. On the 28th of January, 2018, two students from Western Michigan University were taking a walk in a wooded area in North Prairie Avenue in Kalamazoo, around 50 miles away from where Mouche lived. While out on their walk, they came across the lifeless body of a girl. She was laying on her side and was partially clothed. However, based on the clothing the girl did have on, it was evident that they had found Mujay. She was missing her right shoe, and her identity would be confirmed two days later. Her autopsy showed she had died from asphyxia, including strangulation. During the autopsy, it was noted that she had been covered in bleach. The stench was overpowering, and there were spots of white discoloration on her jeans and shirt. Also, there were areas of her body which had chemical burns. It was clear that someone was trying to chemically burn away any evidence that could have been left behind. With this tragic update in the case, Kentwood Public Schools Superintendent Michael Zorhoff issued a letter to parents, students, and staff informing them of the murder. It read in part, Our KPS crisis team members are in place and available to support students and staff during this difficult and sad time. We are also reaching out to the student's family to offer our support. The community came together to provide support for Mujay's family. A GoFundMe was set up to help cover the cost of her funeral. The day after her body was recovered, a candlelight vigil was held at the corner of Eastern Avenue Southeast and Ardmore Street. Around a hundred people showed up to support the family and honor the life of Mujay. At the front of the crowd was a poster showing pictures of Mujay. People who attended brought along letters of condolences, candles, and stuffed animals, which they placed beneath the poster. 
Her family was in attendance, and they told the crowd they had fled from Sierra Leone because of the bloody civil war, and they'd come to the United States thinking that it would be safe. Her aunt, Haja Corne, said, We thought this country was safe. We never really imagined this could happen to us. They asked for the public's help in finding what had happened to Mujé. They pleaded that if anyone knew anything to please contact the police. She struggled to keep her composure as she said, We want to know what happened and how it happened. We want justice. We miss our baby. Someone took her away from us. Mujé's 12-year-old brother, Mustafa Corne, said he wished that his sister had never gone to school that morning because if she hadn't, she may still be alive. Just days after Mujay's body was discovered, there was a person of interest in her murder. 42-year-old Quinn Anthony James James had quite an extensive criminal record, and he was scheduled to be tried as a habitual offender. His criminal record included a 1991 armed robbery conviction in Kent County, as well as two counts of attempted prisoner possession of weapons in Baraga County. As a matter of fact, he had been ordered to stay away from Mujay, and she had been scheduled to testify against him during an upcoming rape trial. Mujay was the girlfriend of James' 17-year-old nephew, Dequarius Bibbs, and beginning when she was just 15 years old, James was sexually abusing her. She went to police and told them that James had raped her in a car outside of the Ridge Park Charter Academy, which was where her boyfriend went to school. She had been in the car with James when he raped her and told her, There is something about you. I could stop. Just, I just can't. In November of 2017, Mujay went to police with this disturbing revelation. She told them that James had raped her multiple times in various locations. He would be arrested and tell the police that he had consensual sex with Mujay. At the time, James had actually been working for the Kentwood Public Schools as a grounds and maintenance worker, even though he was a convicted felon. It was only when Mujay went to the police to report him for rape that he was fired. In a statement from the school, they said that he had very little contact with students. After Mujay reported him, he was charged with multiple counts of criminal sexual conduct, but he was released on a $100,000 bond and a no-contact order with Mujay. Around the same time that her body was found, James was arrested at his home in Wyoming, Michigan. This was in connection with another rape case. This case was reported by another teenage girl back in 2014. In that case, the girl said she had known James for around a year and said that one day she was at his apartment when he grabbed her around the neck and threw her onto the couch. She said he threatened to kill her and ordered her to remove her clothes. She said she thought she was going to die. Then he bear-hugged her and dragged her into the bedroom where he raped her. Afterwards, the girl said that James told her that if she was going to call the police, at least give him an hour to get away. The girl went to police, but prosecutors declined to pursue her case, which is infuriating. James was now behind bars and being held on a $500,000 bond on one count of criminal sexual conduct in relation to the 2014 case.
As this disturbing revelation was made public, James' defense lawyer, Jonathan Shilgen, would say that he was concerned that the 2014 case was being used to hold James in jail while they investigated the murder of Mouget. He said that the $500,000 bond was inflated, especially considering the fact that prosecutors said there was insufficient evidence to bring the case to trial back when it happened. Sometimes, when there's a main suspect in a murder case, investigators and prosecutors will arrest that person on other charges if there is not enough evidence in the murder case just yet. According to James' lawyer, this was exactly what was happening now. He said his client was denying he was involved in Mouget's murder and that his whereabouts from the time she went missing until the time her body was found were accounted for. He said that his client had a home security system which recorded his movements and investigators on the case had access to this system. Mouget's funeral was held at the Eastern Avenue Christian Reformed Church on the 10th of February. The GoFundMe had raised $13,000, which was $3,000 above their goal. Following the service, Mouget's aunts would once again appeal to the public for their assistance in cracking the case. While James was considered a person of interest, he had not been named as a suspect. Her aunt said, It could have been anybody else, but unfortunately, it was Mouget. People should know it could have been their niece or their sister. I'm fearful for my family, and I'm fearful for the community. I don't want this to happen to any other person. She said that the family were not pointing the finger at anybody and disclosed that Mouget had been really apprehensive about testifying against James during the upcoming trial, but she had received an abundance of support from her family. Mouget's family was being supported by attorney Christine Yared, who was an advisory, and she said that many questions were now being raised in regards to Kentwood schools. They knew that James had a criminal record, and they hired him anyway. Kentwood School Superintendent Michael Zorhoff said he had been hired because he had the qualifications and strong references. James' defense attorney would attempt to get his $500,000 bond lowered, but Assistant Kent County Prosecutor Kim Richardson said the bond was appropriate. She revealed that another sexual assault victim had come forward, and it looked as though James was a potential serial rapist. Judge Jeffrey O'Hara would refuse to lower the bond. Meanwhile, Tierra Burnett, James' fiancée, was arrested on a perjury charge related to statements she'd made regarding Mouget. Ironically, she also worked as a custodian at Kentwood Schools, and she was placed on administrative leave. In early March, a vigil was held for Mouget at the spot where her body was found. Family members placed flowers and crosses at the site and then released balloons with the words, Rest in Peace, Mouget, into the sky. Her mother, Fatmara, would speak publicly for the very first time since her daughter disappeared, but she did it through the family attorney. She said, I just wanted to see where my baby was dropped off. The family said they all strongly believed in life after death and that Mouget's soul was in the area where her body had been found. Her aunt, Jania, said the area was like a grave to the family, a place they would never, ever forget. Stephanie McGill, who had been friends with Mouget since elementary school, said that she had been struggling to accept that her friend was really gone. 
The rape case against James would be proceeding through the courts, and he was ordered to stand trial on that charge. During a court hearing related to the charge, Judge William Kelly increased his bond from $100,000 to $250,000. The earlier $500,000 bond was in relation to the 2014 sexual assault. He stated, When I set a $100,000 bond, Mouget was still alive. It was revealed that the sexual assaults on Mouget had happened when her boyfriend, who was James' nephew, was living with James' fiancée, Tierra Burnett. While Mouget obviously wasn't there to testify, her boyfriend, Dequarius, said that James had sexually assaulted Mouget at least four times. He said that he was there when the sexual assaults happened and that both he and Mouget were afraid of James. He added that James had choked him once before and said that James was well aware that Mouget was underage. When James was interviewed by police, he claimed it was consensual and he said he thought Mouget was 17 or 18 years old. After the bail was increased, two more people, in addition to Tiara, James' fiancée, were charged with perjury. They were Gerald Bennett and Darren Eckford. These charges were in relation to their responses during an investigative subpoena into Mouget's murder. Police detective Case Weston would state he believed that Bennett knew more about the murder of Mouget than he was letting on. He said, I believe Bennett possesses knowledge in the murder of Mouget and or assisted in the planning or execution of the crime. It was the first time that investigators had publicly acknowledged that they believed that James was guilty of killing Mouget. He still hadn't been charged in relation to the murder, but it looked as though things were headed in that direction. Finally, in April, almost two and a half months after her body was found, it was announced that charges had been filed, and they had been filed against two people. James was charged with first-degree murder and kidnapping, and Bennett was charged with conspiracy to commit murder in addition to the perjury charge. It was revealed in a probable cause affidavit that James had contacted Bennett through somebody in Detroit after he was seeking someone to help him with the murder of Mouget and the disposal of her body. He had given Bennett a car as a payment. Investigators believed that James and Bennett plotted the murder of Mouget and that James had wanted her dead to prevent her from testifying against him during the upcoming trial. They disclosed some of the evidence they had collected thus far. In addition to uncovering that James was trying to find someone to kill her and dispose of her body, he had been near Mouget's home the night before she disappeared. His car was also linked to the site where Mouget's body was found, and surveillance footage had captured James and Bennett together in Grand Rapids the day before the murder. Darren Eckford, who was a friend of both James and Bennett, would tell investigators that he had spoken with James a couple of times in late 2017 and again in early 2018, and during these conversations, he spoke about needing to kill a girl. It was actually Eckford who put James in contact with Bennett as someone who could maybe help him out. While he admitted that James had spoken about needing to kill a girl, he told investigators that he thought it was a dude that James was planning on killing. There was also some information gathered from Leonard Conters, who had been locked up in jail in November with James after he was arrested for the sexual assault. Now, according to Conters, 
James had told him that he wasn't going to let Mouget take the stand, and that if he couldn't find someone to kill her for him, then he would end up doing it himself. One more point to mention, DNA on Mouget's genes had come back as a match to both her and James. When Bennett was initially interviewed, he told investigators that he was in Grand Rapids in late January to sell marijuana, and that he had been staying with James. In regard to the car he had been given by James, he claimed that he was playing a role in a scam. He said that he needed to take a recently purchased vehicle, drive it around the block, and then give it to another man. He told police he never saw the car again. However, according to Bennett's girlfriend, Wanda Miner, he had driven the car to the house in Detroit, a drive that took him more than two hours, and gave it to her as a birthday gift. She only drove the car once before investigators collected it as evidence. The charges being filed finally brought some relief to Mouget's family. Her mother, Fatmata, said she wanted James to know that he had broken them into pieces, while her aunt said, We are happy and sad at the same time, happy because we are closer to seeing the people who murdered Mouget get convicted, sad, on the other hand, because Mouget is not here to see this day. In the early summer, James' attorney filed a motion requesting that Kent County prosecutors be removed from the case. He revealed that James allegedly had a relationship with someone working at the prosecutor's office the year earlier. He did not name the worker, but said they were involved in an intimate relationship at or near the time of the sexual assaults on Mouget. The prosecutor's office responded to these allegations stating that a non-attorney office employee had dated James in the past, but contact between them had stopped prior to the sexual assaults. They stated, quote, There is no credible claim that the employee discussed the crime, the defense strategy, or other information which would potentially create a conflict of interest. The person in question was a victim's advocate, and the judge would hear arguments in relation to the alleged conflict of interest and the judge refused to remove the Kent County prosecutors. Natasha Broy, the victim's advocate, had dated James in May of 2017, but they called it quits in November. It wasn't until after they had broken up that she read a police report detailing James' sexual assaults of Mouget. His defense team would then waive the preliminary hearings of both James and Bennett. This meant they would go directly to trial they would additionally request a competency hearing for James. Around the same time, James' fiancée, Tiara Burnett, was charged with witness intimidation. She was accused of having a burner phone which she used to contact James while he was in jail. James had been able to use the calling accounts of other inmates to call the phone that Burnett had acquired. She was accused of threatening, intimidating, discouraging, or attempting to discourage a trial witness from giving information. She was additionally charged with conspiracy to bribe, intimidate, or interfere with a witness by working with James on this effort. The witness was Stefano Labant, who was set to testify against James during the murder trial. Burnett was ordered to stand trial on the charges, with Judge Kimberly Shager noting, Another witness apparently is dead who was going to testify against Mr. Quinn James. You can definitely understand, when you put the totality of the circumstances together, 
the concern of Mr. Labant. Stefano had spoken to investigators about an incident on the 2nd of July. He said that he was outside smoking a cigarette when Burnett came up to him. This was after James was put in jail. He said he was comfortable with the conversation until Burnett received a phone call from James from another inmate's calling account. Burnett asked Stefano if he wanted to speak with James, and he said no. Burnett then began to ask Stefano about how his family was doing. He had never asked this before, and he was concerned. Investigators were able to obtain the phone call, and when Burnett informed James that Stefano did not want to speak to him, he said that he expected he would be out after his trial and he would see Stefano then. This conversation was clearly threatening in tone because Stefano was going to be testifying against James in the murder trial. And listeners, we're going to take a short break. The first trial to be held was the sexual assault trial of James. It was decided that the jury would not hear any evidence during this trial in relation to the murder of Mouget. They were only told that Mouget was not going to be here to testify because she had died. During opening statements, Assistant Kent County Prosecutor Kevin Bramble said, I'm sure you're wondering how a then 42-year-old man ended up having sexual relations with a 15-year-old girl. He said that after meeting Mouget on Facebook, Dequarius began to date her. James would drive Dequarius to pick Mouget up. He revealed that James denied any sexual contact with Mouget before minimizing his actions and saying that it was consensual, despite the fact that she was only 15 years old. In a recorded phone call with his mother from jail, James said that he and his nephew, Dequarius, had sex with Mujay and, in his own words, and that was that. During this trial, the defense would question Mujay's actual age, since the age of consent was 16. This was a desperate grasp at straws on their behalf, but they went with it anyway. While her family were 100% adamant that she was 15 years old when James began to sexually assault her, the defense would question whether her birth records in a war-torn country could be accurate. Her aunt, Jania, testified, Mujay was my firstborn niece, born into my own hands. There's no way I can ever forget that day, born into my own hands, November 8, 2001. Mujay's boyfriend would testify against James. Dequarius said that James began to rape his girlfriend in the summer of 2017. He said that in their first meeting, they stopped at a Buffalo Wild Wings, and James climbed into the back seat with them where he raped Mouget. He said that he did not stop the assault because he was afraid, and said that on one occasion, he tried to stop James when he was choking his aunt, and James responded by choking him. Jennifer Twilling, a counselor at East Kentwood High School, would testify that Mouget had told her about the sexual assaults as well as telling the police. She had given very detailed accounts. Mouget said she had feared coming forward because James told her he had access to the school computers and would lower her grades. At this trial, Quinn James would be found guilty of the rape of Mouget Dumboya. He was sentenced to between 20 and 30 years in prison. Outside of court, Mujay's mother, Fatmata, collapsed and burst into floods of tears. She said that her heart had been broken up and down. 
The sentence received by James was the maximum under advisory state sentencing guidelines, and it did bring some semblance of justice. But the family still had the trauma of a murder trial to go through, so the victory was hollow. Mouget's aunt, Jania, said, He deserved what he got. That's not going to change the situation. It's not going to fix our hurt. That's not going to take away our pain. The trauma, the pain, it's always going to be there. The family revealed that Mouget had been terrified to come forward and report James for the sexual assaults he was inflicting on her. But she did come forward, and the reason she came forward was to try and prevent it from happening to anyone else. She was scared, but she didn't want another girl to go through what she had gone through. Her aunt said James had underestimated Mouget, and above all else, he underestimated the police. With James convicted on rape charges, it was time for the focus to be on the upcoming murder trial. The trial began on the 21st of February, 2019. During the opening statements, the prosecutor told the jury that before anyone even knew Mouget was dead, James had been telling people that his problems were over, that the rape charges had been dropped. In a recorded phone call to a friend, James had said, That's a wrap. When the friend asked if he meant it was good or bad, he replied, That's a wrap for the great. His defense attorney said in his opening statements that the prosecution and investigators had tunnel vision toward his client and drew conclusions to fit the case. He said that Mouget had been upset with her stepfather and had spoken about running away from home. He suggested that Mouget had met a violent end on the streets after running away. Despite the fact that James had been convicted of the rape, his attorney said James admitted to having consensual sex with Mouget and that he believed she was 16, not 15. He stated, There were quite a few interesting things that were left out. It begins with motive. What they believe is a very compelling motive that Quinn killed Mouget to prevent her from testifying. Quinn told the detectives he had a relationship with Mouget. It's on video. You're going to watch. He tells his mom. He tells his fiancée. It doesn't do him much good to get rid of a witness he'd already told the detective he'd slept with. It's just about the dumbest plan in the history of plans. It was the prosecution's theory that Mouget had been abducted before she got to the bus stop on the morning that she disappeared. After reporting James for the sexual assaults, Mouget had been terrified that he was going to hurt her. A wide array of evidence was presented at trial. Cell phone and Google map tracking showed that James drove to Detroit on the 21st of January, 2018, picked up Bennett, and brought him back to his home. On the night before Mouget vanished, James and Bennett drove by her apartment and the bus stop. The next morning, around the same time Mouget vanished, James either stayed at home or at least left his cell phone at home when Mouget was abducted. A little while later, a car that James had rented was spotted on a trail camera near the wooded area where Mouget's body would ultimately be found. As the prosecution said, this was James and Bennett disposing of her body. A couple of hours later, this rental car was captured on surveillance video at a car wash in Grand Rapids. From here, James returned the car to the dealership and it was sold. Investigators were able to track the car down after James became a suspect and it was forensically examined. Inside the vehicle, they found Mouget's blood. 
Her DNA mixed with James' DNA was also found on her pant leg. Surveillance footage would also capture Bennett leaving James' home the afternoon Mouget vanished. He was driving a car that had been given to him by James, despite the fact they didn't actually know one another. According to investigators and the prosecution, this car was payment for helping with the abduction and murder. The life of Mouget Dumboya was apparently worth a car valued at $1,200. An inmate who had been locked up with James after he was earlier charged with multiple counts of criminal sexual conduct would testify that he had spoken openly about wanting to kill Mouget. During closing arguments, the prosecutor said James had a powerful motive to kill her, and that motive was to prevent her from testifying against him. She said that he took her innocence first, then he took her life so he could avoid a potential life sentence. The prosecutor said, don't let him get away with it. The defense attorney said that the prosecution had unfairly characterized evidence to tie James to the murder. He stated, they're twisting it into something devious when here's an innocent explanation for it. The jury was sent to deliberate before they returned with a verdict. They found Quinn James guilty of first-degree murder and all other charges. Following the verdict, Detective Bill Morian recalled how every single investigator in the area was involved in this investigation. He said they hadn't rushed into identifying James as the suspect, like his defense had claimed. They simply followed the evidence. He said, The evidence in this case never went off the path of Quinn. Mouget's aunt, Janio, referred to her niece as a hero. She said that she went ahead with the sexual assault case despite her own fear of James to try and ensure that he never hurt another girl ever again. Following James' conviction, his fiancée, Tiara Burnett, pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice. She had served six months in jail awaiting disposition of the case and was ordered to complete five years of probation. She made a brief statement to the Grand Rapids Press. She said, This whole situation was upsetting and messed everything up for me. I want to apologize to the family for their loss and I'm also very upset and hurt about the whole situation. I'm still dealing with the issues, but in time, things will get better. The next week, James' sentencing phase was held. Poignant victim impact statements would be presented from those who loved Mouget the most. Her aunt spoke about how she had been looking forward to prom. She knew what dress she was going to wear. She knew what makeup she was going to wear, and she could not wait to ride in a limousine with her best friend. Jania stated, but instead, she got a casket. Instead, she got a hearse. Her mother, Fatmata, said, You destroyed her life, and then you turn around and take her away from me forever. It is hard for me to forgive him. People like this don't deserve to be in a community. As the victim impact statements were presented, James stood nearby. He looked at the family, but there was not a semblance of emotion on his face. His demeanor changed when it was his turn to make a statement before the judge. He said that he had tried to remain quiet and stoic throughout the trial to respect the process, adding that he would be exonerated. He had a smirk on his face as the victim impact statements were read aloud, but now the smirk was gone. 
Judge George Quist referred to the murder as a horrific crime that was committed against a very vulnerable young girl. James was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. With James behind bars, his co-defendant Bennett was determined to be incompetent to stand trial because of cognitive deficits that may not get better despite attempts to educate him. Bennett was still being held in Kent County Jail, and prosecutors wanted to get the case moving, but Bennett was not competent to proceed. Judge George Quist said the evidence had shown that Bennett would not be capable of assisting in his own defense in a rational manner. He said he simply did not have the intellectual functioning or the memory skills to retain information he needed to attain competency. As of this writing, Bennett remained behind bars at the Kent County Jail. In April of 2023, he was found competent to stand trial in this case. However, things changed again in June of 2023, just a few days ago, when federal prosecutors said that a superseding indictment of charges against Gerald Bennett included solicitation to commit a crime of violence. Prosecutors say that in November of 2022, he offered to pay another inmate $20,000 to kill a witness. Bennett thought that the other inmate would be released soon and told the inmate he would fake incompetency to provide more time. These charges are more serious than the kidnapping charge and will likely be adjudicated before the kidnapping charge. We're going to keep an eye on the press as this unfolds. It is certainly a developing story. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe.